One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. If you have your Bible, you can grab it with me and turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 12. Speaking of uh, beautiful weather, uh, mark your calendars. Two weeks from today, uh, we will be having our annual Church in the Park. Some of you know uh, Church in the Park. For two Sundays, we'll be out in the park. The first Sunday, uh, we'll have worship in the park. We'll have some teaching in the park. It'll be a beautiful, beautiful day. And then the second Sunday, so I think that's the 17th, and then the 24th, we'll have Friendsgiving in the park. And so uh, we'll give you more information, but you can plan to bring your favorite uh, fall-ish brunch brunch item, okay, and uh, we'll do like a Friendsgiving brunch out in the, uh, out in the park, and uh, it's a great, great uh, thing that we do. It, it's kind of something we stumbled into on accident. We actually, there's a festival of trees here in the museum, and so we're not able to be inside, and uh, we, so we're a homeless church in the park on that day, but it ended up being a beautiful time of year and a great, great time, and so I encourage you to plan to be there, and uh, so uh, we are in a series right now that we're calling Milk and Honey. Anybody love milk and honey? Yes. Do we need to say raw milk, raw honey? Maybe we need to make that distinction here. I don't know. But uh, milk and honey, and those words really come right out of the Scripture, out of Exodus chapter 3, verse 17, when God speaks to Moses and, and his plan for his people Israel Uh, as they have been slaves in Egypt, and he says this, I'm going to bring you up out of the oppression or the affliction of Egypt, and I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I love that. I'm going to bring you up out of bondage, and I'm going to bring you not just out of this old life, not just out of this place where you have been, but I'm also going to bring you into uh, a new place that's flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it's going to be a place of blessing. And, you know, that's really a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of salvation, that God doesn't want to just take us out of the old life, but he also wants to take us into a new life. That's what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. It's the rule and realm uh, where Jesus uh, has authority. In other words, Jesus doesn't want to just be our Savior or our Deliverer. He wants to be our Lord. And you'll never experience the blessings of God until you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. I said this on the first, time, uh, the first week of the message, um, that, that part-time followers don't get full-time benefits. There, there's many people that came out of Egypt that did not enter into the blessing that although they experienced deliverance, they didn't experience the fullness of salvation. And the Scripture says this in 1 Peter, that, that we should be careful that we do not lose the full reward. In other words, you can get a partial reward, right? You can experience the partial benefits of salvation, but if you can experience the partial benefits, how many of you know that also means you can experience the full benefits, And I don't know about you, but I don't want like just the partial experience. I want the full experience. I want the benefits and everything that God has for me. So that's what we've been talking about. How do you live a life that experiences the blessing of God? And we talked about the principle of honor 
The principle of honor is that uh, an atmosphere of honor attracts the blessing of God. If you remember Jesus in his hometown, uh, although he was fully capable of healing, the Bible says in his hometown he could do no mighty works because there was no honor. Therefore, an atmosphere of honor releases the blessing of God into our lives. Last week, I talked to you about the principle of first, that when we put God first in our lives, the rest of our lives is blessed. And I shared with you that, in fact, God can't be second. There's some things that God can't do. God cannot lie. Why? Because he is truth. God cannot sin. Why? Because he is holy. And God cannot be second because he is preeminent. He is before all, over all, supreme. And so when we put Jesus first in our lives, we are ordering our lives according to the kingdom of God, and we experience the blessing of God in our lives. And today I want to continue. I want to speak to you today on the principle of generosity, the principle of generosity. And I want to look at this passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 12. And this is God speaking to Abram, who later becomes Abraham, the father of our faith. And he says this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. He says, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Listen to this. And I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth, what does it say, shall be blessed. This is the, the original covenant that God gave to Abraham, which the New, the, the New Testament says that we are partakers of that through faith. And, and I want you to see that God's promise to Abraham wasn't just that I will forgive your sin. Of course, that is the beginning of it, but it's far greater than that. It is that I will bless you. But not only that I will bless you, but then it goes on to say, so that you will be a blessing. I will make you a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Anybody thankful for that blessing today? Amen? Amen? In fact, the Bible says that although this was the, the beginning of what became the Jewish people, the Bible says that through faith, we have been grafted in, those of us who are Gentiles like myself, we've been grafted into the blessing of Abraham, that, the, that this blessing has come upon the whole earth. But I want you to understand that God's promise to Abraham wasn't just that I'm going to bless you, it was also that you will be a blessing. And I believe this, that in this very important passage of Scripture, we find uh, two views that really become fundamental to all of life, two ways that, that every single one of us can live our lives, and it's this, this two perspectives. We can either live lives as takers, or we can live lives as givers. That, that's true in all of life. You can live your life as a taker. We, we saw last week that the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that Eve took the fruit, that, that that was basically rooted in a distrust that God would provide for her needs, and so it says she took. 
And, and that is the selfish perspective that pervades all of humanity, right? We are not born generous. We are born selfish, right? These precious babies that were on the platform today, not one of them, although they're beautiful and valuable and made in the image of God, none of them showed up saying, how can I serve you, mom and dad? They, they all showed up saying, serve me, feed me, take care of me. I want the world to revolve around me, right? And that's the way all of us begin. And the reality is that many of us, for because of social norms, we learn to constrain that selfishness. But for many of us, that root of selfishness is still the primary motivation in our lives, we live our lives oftentimes not as givers, but as takers. Think about it with me. There's two ways to have a relationship. You can have a relationship as a taker, give me, meet my needs, fulfill my wants, or you can have a relationship as a giver. How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I bless you? How can I take care of you? Right? You can, you can approach a conversation in one of two ways. You can approach the conversation as a taker. That is, you are bringing no, you know, emotional energy to the conversation. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? Okay. Uh, one person has talked. The rest of you guys, maybe you fall into that category, okay? But if you've, if you've ever talked to somebody like that and you're like, man, I am like, this is a one-way conversation. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? You like go through all of the questions, probing questions, trying to get them to open up. And at some point, you're like, this interview is over. I'm done, right? I have nothing left to give. Why? Because it's just a one-way. You're just giving, 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 rather than, than uh, they're just taking, 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 rather than recognizing the ability in a conversation to be a giver. Uh, there's two ways to live in your work life. You can be a taker that basically approaches your work with the, the, the perspective of you want to get all you can from your work, from your customers, from your employer with minimal output of goods and services, right? You, you're just a taker or you can live or you can approach your work as, as a giver, I, I want to go above and beyond. I finished my work. Is there anything else I can do to serve, right? There, there's a difference between a, a taker and a giver. You can be a taker in your neighborhood. You show up in the neighborhood and you've moved into the neighborhood just because you like the amenities of the neighborhood and just because the, the value, uh, you know, maybe that it would give you through purchasing a home in that neighborhood and you show up as a taker rather than the perspective of a giver says, I'm not here just because of what you offer me. I'm here because I want to make this neighborhood better. I, I want to increase the value, and I don't just mean financial value, but I actually want to make this neighborhood a better place to live. Amen? There's two ways to live your life. You can live your life as a taker or you can live your life as a giver. And here's what I, I want you to see is that fundamentally the gospel reorients our hearts from the posture of taking to the posture of giving. 
that the gospel changes our hearts, that we no longer approach a relationship or our work or, or even our church as takers, but it reorients our hearts to be givers. Why? Because we recognize that Jesus has given everything to me. And if he has given everything to me, as the Bible says, I have everything I need for life and godliness. I don't have to live my life taking from everybody else. I can live my life as a giver because I have received from Jesus Christ. It changes our lives from being takers to being givers. And this plays out in every aspect of our lives, but ultimately I believe the most fundamental place that this shift plays out is in the area of our money, in the area of our money. And last week I shared with you about the principle of first and the practice of tithing. And for those of you who weren't here, I told you that I understand that oftentimes when we talk about money in church, that money is kind of like a trigger word, right? And the fact is that there's been a lot of abuse in the history of the church. I told you last week the time that I turned on Christian TV and the guy on TV was saying 7 o'clock is the double blessing hour. Whatever you give during the 7 o'clock hour, you're guaranteed a double blessing return. So I called up and I said, hey, I'd like to get the double blessing, 7 o'clock double blessing. Is that still available? Was this pre-recorded or is this still available? Is that 7 o'clock East Coast or West Coast time? To which they immediately transferred me to the prayer line, right? And so uh, there's been all kinds of abuses around the issue of money. And, and, And as we are in this conversation about money, Now, I want you to understand that our heart is not at all to use gimmicks. There's no 7 o'clock double blessing hours. I told you last week we're not going to roll out an ATM um, or do anything like that. In fact, we've already received the offering today, so you can just rest at ease. But our, our goal is that we would look at the Word of God because you can't study the Scripture without coming to the understanding that our money matters. Our money matters, and ultimately our money matters because money is a reflection of your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Jesus said. He was showing that there is a direct relationship between your heart and your money, that where your money goes, your heart will follow. In other words, when Jesus has your money, he has your heart, and so when we talk about being followers of Jesus, we have to understand that the gospel changes the way we handle our money, and it changes us from takers to givers. It changes our perspective from how much can I get to how much can I give. The principle of generosity is this, that a generous heart attracts the blessing of God. Now, let me say this. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. You cannot buy God's blessing on your life. We said this the first week, that God is not a heavenly slot machine that you can kind of just have this transaction with, but he is a heavenly father. But all of us with children know that although we always want to bless our children, there is certain 
actions. There is obedience that allows us to release blessing in a greater way to their lives. The scripture says it this way. One of the first verses I had my children memorize is, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. I had them when they were like two and three lined up, repeat after me. If I'm willing and obedient, I'll eat the good of the land. We still say that. And uh, if any of you would like to join in our scripture memory program, sign up now. Spaces are limited. But Jesus said it this way. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it records the words of Jesus saying this, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed, if you want the blessing of God on your life in a greater measure, what does Jesus say that looks like? He says, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, how many of you know there's some scriptures in the Bible that, that we believe, and then there's others that we say we believe? I, I think for many of us, if we're honest, this falls under the category of things that we would like to believe, but we're not quite sure if we actually believe, right? Well, do we actually believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive, well, it's interesting now, 2,000 years after Jesus spoke these words, uh, psychology and, and um, is just catching up with what Jesus had, had said 2,000 years ago. In fact, uh, psychologists are recognizing now, even over the last 20 years, in a greater way than ever before, the benefits of generosity. That, that literally when Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive, that wasn't just a nice spiritual sounding phrase for the Son of God to say that was actually a reality that we can build our lives around. In fact, I have some benefits of generosity that you can look at quickly today. There's some benefits uh, of giving like generosity, and this is not from a Christian standpoint. These, many of them come from a Harvard business study, but generosity reduces depression rates. It reduces time for processing grief when we're generous. Uh, generosity extends our life expectancy. It reduces burnout in caregivers, people that are caring for others, if they have a generous attitude rather than an obligation attitude, it reduces burnout it promotes social connections. Generosity lowers blood pressure. Gen generosity reduces stress, and it increases feel-good chemicals, endorphins, dopamines, and oxytocin. Wow. How many of you think you need to write yourself a prescription for generosity, right? What an amazing thing. Uh, I mean, literally, when the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver, this, this is backed up by science that when you give, you become more happy. That word cheerful means uh, happy, hilarious is what it literally means. And here, science thousands of years later is backing up what Scripture says. Now, again, this is true in every area of life, but, but foundationally or at the very uh, core, if it doesn't manifest in our finances, it doesn't affect all of life. 
And so God wants to release blessing into our lives, but it's never so that we can just have more blessing. It's so that we can be a greater blessing. It's so that we can not get more, but so that we can give more. But again and again throughout the Scripture, as God makes the promise of His blessing and His favor on people, there is always paired with it a warning of the danger of wealth. In fact, the Bible says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God is speaking to Israel as He's preparing to lead them into the promised land. In verse 7, Deuteronomy 8 verse 7, I think we have it to put up on the screen. It says this, it starts off and says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Again, this is a picture of salvation, what God does for us, not bringing us into a a physical place, but bringing us into the kingdom of God. And it says he's bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow, of valleys and hills, and a, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. Who's like, I want to move there? Yes, right? This is all these good things. He says, in this land you will eat bread without scarcity. That's my life verse. Eat bread without scarcity, okay? In which you will lack nothing. It goes on to say in verse 11, it says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. When I bring you into this place of blessing, when you get there, don't forget God. And it goes on to say this, that, that when you come into that place and you experience the blessing, don't forget God. Verse 16, it says this, Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you. Listen to this, to do good to you in the end. Then, if you get to that place where you think that you have, you have arrived, you've accomplished this, I've earned it, I've worked for it. God didn't take that test in college. I took that test in college. God didn't work 75 hours a week. I worked 75 hours a week. Fill in the blank, whatever you feel that you may have done to earn the blessing. It says this, that, that uh, beware lest you say, my power and my hand have gained me this wealth. Verse 18, at the end it says this, For you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. He says, don't forget God because it's God who gives you the ability to get wealth. Now, some of you may hear that and you may say, is that some sort of prosperity theology? I, I want you to understand that is not prosperity theology. That is lordship theology. That is when I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, I recognize that everything I have has, is a gift from him, that even the breath in my lungs and the beat of my heart is not my own doing. Everything I have has come from him. Hey, he's the giver. I'm the receiver in this relationship. That he's blessed me. But he says, don't forget God who brought you out of bondage. In other words, don't get over getting saved. Here's what I, I want to ask you today. Have you gotten over 
getting saved? Have you forgotten what the Bible calls the joy of your salvation? If we struggle with selfishness, it's a sign that we have gotten over getting saved. We've forgotten that God has brought us out of bondage. God has delivered us. God has given us peace in our minds. God has given us strength in our bodies. God has given us wisdom and creativity and ability, and everything we have comes from God. And so I'm never going to get over getting saved because everything I have comes from God. You see, the fact is that living a generous life is less about a financial position and more about a heart condition. It's less about where you stand financially, and it's more about where you stand in your heart before God, that you recognize everything you have has come from God. And so I want to share with you three reasons for generosity, three reasons that I believe every single one of us should have that will motivate us towards living a life of generosity. Again, not just in money, in relationships, in our work, in, in every aspect of our lives, but it will play out in our finances. The first reason that we should be generous, number one, is this, is that generosity is resistance. Generosity is resistance. What do I mean by that? Gener when you give you are resisting the, the self-centered pull of materialism that dominates our culture. I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but there is, a, there is a stream in our culture, and it does not pull you towards selflessness. It pulls you towards selfishness. It pulls you towards make it all about you and get everything you can. And, and Jesus said it this way, in Matthew 6, 24, I'll take a drink of water or tea. Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters. Notice that language. This is strong language. He says, you can't serve two masters. He goes on to say, you'll either hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon, uh, again, I talked last week about first fruits. I told you first fruits is not trending on Twitter. I know you didn't wake up in the morning going, I hope he speaks about first fruits or about mammon. <laughs> but mammon actually is very important and affects all of our life because mammon, the word mammon is an Aramaic word and it means riches, wealth, or property, riches, wealth, or property. But here, Jesus uses that word, and actually four places in the Gospels, Jesus uses the word mammon. And when he uses the word mammon, he's not just talking about riches, wealth, and property. He actually personifies it because he is recognizing that there is a spirit that operates behind riches and money and wealth. I, I I don't know if you realize that or not, and some of you are like, this is kind of getting a little weird, a spirit on my money. Yeah, yeah, all of your money, all money has a spirit that can be attached to it. It can either be uh, the Holy Spirit, 
Uh, We talked last week about redeeming our finances, that God's blessing comes on our finances, or it can be the spirit of mammon that's on your finances. And mammon will seek to control your life. It, It will seek to have control. Jesus says this, it will try to be your master. It will try to be your master. Listen to this. I don't have the notes for the screen or this quote for the screen, so you'll have to listen very attentively. Is everybody listening very attentively? I can tell. Okay, you're ready. You're ready for this this morning. Okay, mammon is the inordinate desire to possess wealth. It's not just the desire to possess wealth. It's the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of abstract value with the intention to keep it for oneself. Far beyond the dictates of basic survival and comfort, it is applied to a markedly high desire for a pursuit of wealth, status, and power. Greed is similarly an inordinate desire to acquire or possess more than one needs. Money is ubiquitously tempting because of a kind of umbrella principle covering everything money can buy. Why is money so powerful? Because money, uh, money isn't just about money. It's actually representative of all of life. It goes on to say it is either or it is also or rather falsely promises to be a security blanket against change. If I have enough money, then I can control my life. It offers a poor copy of self-sufficiency. If you have this, you don't need God. Mammon is not desire as such or even desire for temporal possessions as such, but the immoderate desire for them. For it is natural to, to man to desire external things as means, but mammon makes them into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes the devil. That is Peter Kreft, the f- a philosophy professor at Boston College, talking about the danger of mammon. Notice mammon is not just money and not just stuff or possessions. It's the inordinate desire to have stuff, to have possessions. Historically, here in America, there is a shift that has happened in American culture. Oftentimes, we are unaware of the things that have brought us culturally to where we're at today. And many of us aren't even aware of this, what I would call a culture of consumerism. But after World War II, I'll just give you a little historical background. After World War II, uh, some of you realize and and know that there was a shift in American culture. During World War II, all of the the factories and all of the uh, manpower was mobilized in order to produce goods and services for the war. But after the war was over, economists recognized that they needed, with the war done, they needed to create a new need or, in order to drive the, the, the supply. They needed a new demand in order to, to drive the economic supply. And so they shifted and they recognized the need to shift American culture from a culture of customers to a culture of consumers. They hired some of the greatest psychologists in the world. One of them was a man named Edward Bernays, who is the nephew of Sigmund Freud. 
And they began to utilize psychological tactics in order to create a perceived sense of need towards goods and services. In the past, basically, goods and services were kind of utilitarian. You got what you needed. The clothes you had fit whatever your job was. But now they no longer just sold the goods and services. They sold a promise of what those goods and services would give to you. And so no longer were you just buying a table. You were buying the promise of family. No longer were you just buying a car. You're now buying freedom, right? No longer are you just buying a suit or an outfit. You're now buying identity, they, in, their, in advertising, they began to utilize these uh, perceived sense of need that was created by or, or uh, developed this way of thinking, developed by Sigmund Freud. And Edward Bernays uh, was the father of advertising that brought this to the masses in America. It's a very interesting documentary on YouTube called The Century of Self that, that outlines the whole process. Not only that, but they began to develop what was called planned obsolescence, which was basically that although a, a product could have a, an extended life cycle, they began to build in a limited life cycle to the product, long enough to make you feel like you got your money's worth, but short enough to keep you coming back for more, thereby basically producing a hamster wheel of consumerism creating the atmosphere that made every single one of us think if we could just get the next car, if we could just get the next house, if we could just get the next outfit, if we could just get the next fill in the blank, then we would be satisfied. Victor Lebo, a marketing consultant in the 1950s, said this, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert buying and the use of goods into rituals. Can you say Black Friday? <laughs> that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, and replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. Victor Lebo, marketing consultant. Here's what I want you to understand. There's nothing wrong with stuff. But the spirit of mammon, and there's nothing wrong with, with money. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car or having a nice house or wearing nice clothes. But the spirit of mammon promises to fulfill the longings of your heart through stuff. The spirit of mammon will promise to deliver things that only God can give you. You know, many of us have probably been under this influence before, and perhaps you've never recognized it, but maybe you've said something like this, I, God's either going to have to come through for me, or I'm going to need a lot of money. God's either going to have to come through for me, or somebody's going to have to give me a lot of money. What are we saying? That we begin to see money and wealth and stuff as the solutions to our problems, rather than God as the solution to our problem. There's nothing wrong with stuff, but stuff will never give us what only God can give us. Stuff will never give you joy. Only Jesus can give you joy. Stuff will never give you freedom. Only Jesus can give you freedom. Stuff will never give you peace in your soul. Only Jesus can give you peace in your soul. 
And when we start thinking that most of our problems can be solved by having more money, we are beginning to fall under the sway of mammon. The Bible says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. In their greediness, they say, when I get enough money, then I'll serve God. Or some would even say, I need more money just so I can serve God. Again, let me tell you, generosity is not about a financial position. It's about a heart condition. You either serve God or you don't. You see, money will actually just magnify the problems that you already have. If you have marriage problems, get money and you'll just have bigger marriage problems. If you have emotional problems, get money and you'll just have bigger emotional problems problems. Anybody ever been on TMZ.com, right? That's what it is, just bigger problems, right? And so here's the decision that every single one of us have to come to. Here's the decision. Will you serve money or will you serve God? It's a sum total equation. It's not I'll serve money during the week and I'll serve God on Sunday. You see, you'll either You'll, you'll either serve God and use money, or you'll serve money and try to use God to get money. And there's nothing wrong with God giving us money. The Bible says it's God who gives us the ability to get wealth, but it's not so that we can have more stuff. It says it's so that he can establish his covenant in the earth. What's his covenant? That he wants to bless all the nations of the earth. And so we have to make the decision. But when we give, we are fighting. We are breaking against the, we are breaking off the chains of self-centeredness that if they are not dealt with, they will enslave our souls to stuff. And so generosity is resistance. Number two, generosity is worship. Whoa, look at the time. Generosity is worship. What do I mean by that? Look at what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. This is Paul, and he's speaking to the church in Philippi about contributing to the ministry, supporting the work of the gospel. And he says, I don't seek the gift. I'm not just after the gift. I, I want the fruit that abounds to your account. I want God's blessing to come on your life. Verse 18, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that you sent. Listen to this. A sweet-smelling aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is a beautiful statement that your giving, he says, it's supported his work. It's allowed the gospel to be proclaimed around the world. It's allowed churches to be planted and lives to be, lives to be trans, transformed. But ultimately, the giving is not about what it does on the earth. It's about worship to God. He says it's a sweet-smelling aroma. That is imagery right out of the Old Testament temple where there was an altar and they would bring their offerings and they would lay it on the altar. And many of those offerings they would burn up. And as the offering was burnt, the smell of the aroma of the smoke would fill the temple and it would be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. 
Some of you are, maybe you're very thrifty and you're like, why would you waste that offering? Well, actually, the priest would eat off of that offering, but not only that, when they were bringing that, bringing that offering, they were, they were saying to God, God, you're more valuable to me than this offering. I value you more than the value of this gift that I'm bringing. Therefore, it's a joy to sacrifice to you. You see, ultimately, worship is sacrifice. Worship is sacrifice. Where there is no sacrifice, there may be singing, there may be dancing, there may be good vibes, but where there is no sacrifice, there is no worship. And unfortunately, in today's day and age, and I'm a big fan of making church feel like a, a home and a family, and, and for people that are far from God to always feel that there's a, a welcome home atmosphere, but oftentimes in the name of making people feel comfortable, we have dumbed down worship to the place where it no longer requires a sacrifice. And so we'll say things like this, and, and I've said it before, our team doesn't typically say it, but we'll say things like, if you're comfortable, lift your hands. Now, I understand the heart behind that of we're not, you know, trying to mandate everybody, you got to put your hands up. That's not it. But may I propose to you that in order for it to be worship, it has to get you out of your comfort zone? If it's what's just comfortable for me, it, it's... It, it may be therapeutic for me. You can call it yoga. You can call it what you will. But if it is not sacrificial, it is not worship. Because worship requires sacrifice. It's good to lift up your hands anyway. Good stretch. Never hurt anybody. But let's not call it worship, right? David said it this way in First Chronicles chapter 21. As, uh, Jana, you must know this verse. You're already getting blessed. Thank you. David, God had commanded him to build an altar, and it, through this altar, he was going to push back a, a plague, a sickness from Israel. And, and he said that he was to buy this, uh, buy this field and this piece of property from this man. And he goes to this man, David the king, says, I want to buy your property. And the man says, hey, you can have my property. You can have all of my farming equipment. You can just have it all. And, and David says, nope. Nope, I will not take it from you. And he goes on to say this, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 22, he says, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Because he understood that in order for worship to happen, there must be a sacrifice. We are not worshiping when we stay in our comfort zone. We are worshiping when we step out, when we give not what we have as extra, but when we give sacrificially. You see, what you value, you will sacrifice for. When you buy something, you are saying, I want this more than I want the money. And when you give, you're saying, God, I want you more than I want this. I, I value you. Why? Because you give me joy. You give me peace. You are worthy of everything. You're the source of my life. That's why the Bible, or Jesus tells the, the parable of the man 
that found the, the field, and it says it's like the kingdom of God. And when he found this field with the treasure in it, he went and he sold everything. Why? For the joy. For the joy. Why? Because the joy of what he was taking hold of was greater than the joy of what he was letting go of. And that's what generosity is. We're saying, God, you're more valuable to me than my stuff. I can't give something to you if it doesn't cost me something. See, when we give, we are worshiping God. It's a sweet-smelling aroma to him. And number three, the reason that we give is that generosity is, not only is generosity resistance, not only is it worship, but the third thing I want you to see is that generosity is sowing. Generosity is sowing. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, one of the greatest passages on generosity in the New Testament. Verse, chapter 9, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says, This I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is the principle of sowing and reaping, or what some theologians call the law of reciprocity. The law of reciprocity is a law by which God governs all of creation. It's a law that God established in order to expand his kingdom on the world, in the world. And the law of reciprocity is first that life is in the seed. Life is in the seed. I don't know if you realize this, but God is not making any more men from the dust. He made a man and he made a woman, and now he is using seed to make more. I won't go into the details, but y'all saw the babies up here this morning. I think you get it, okay? Life is in the seed. The second thing of this law of reciprocity is that seed must be sown. You see, in order for there to be fruit from the seed, the seed has to be sown. Jesus said it this way, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. And so seed, in order to be effective, must be sown. This is true in physical, natural, uh, biological life. This is true also in spiritual life. The Word of God is like seed. But in order for it to be uh, effective, it must be taught. It must be proclaimed, right? It must be sown. And not only that, but a harvest is proportionate to the seed sown. If you want a great, if you want a field of, I'm trying to think of a, uh, blueberries. If you want a field of blueberries, you can't just sow one blueberry You've got, to, you've got to sow a lot of blueberries, right? Why? Because the harvest is proportionate to the seed. That's what Paul says here. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you're also going to reap bountifully. Now, let me tell you this. There is, as with everything that God establishes, there is always a counterfeit to the genuine. Everything that God does, the devil copies. Let me say it this way. For every truth, there is an abuse of that truth. But in order for there to be an abuse, there has to first be an intended use. 
And there has been an abuse around this teaching and that it basically reduces God to a formula that if you get give, you will get. And, and preachers make all kinds of guarantees of, you know, percentages and all of that. Let me tell you, the Bible doesn't say any of that. But what the Bible does say is that God has established the, the principle of sowing and reaping to govern the world and to expand his kingdom in the world. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and take dominion, how does that happen? It happens through the reproduction of seed. And when you sow, you not only get the fruit of that seed, but you get all of the potential of that fruit, the seeds within that fruit. It's an exponential potential. Why? Because God is an exponential God. Everything he does is exponential. And Paul is saying here that although we don't give to get, God is so gracious and he's so loving and he's so merciful and he's so wonderful that he has empowered us to expand his kingdom through sowing and reaping. And the more we sow, the more blessing comes into our lives. The more we give, the Bible says it this way, if you're faithful with what is little, I will make you ruler over much. If you want the blessing of God in an increased way in every area of your life, you have to first be faithful with what God has put in your hand today. What God has put in your hand, the seed that you have in your hand, listen to this, is the key to the blessing that God wants to bring you into. The question is, will we be faithful with what God has put in our hand? And so next steps as we prepare to close this morning. Next steps, how do we respond to that? What do we do about that? Well, I believe this. I believe there's, there's really for all of us, there's four levels of generosity. There's four levels of generosity that we can step into. And I think we have it to put up. The first level is this, giving. And many of us live in that place of, of giving. We give. Maybe we give occasionally in the offering. Maybe we put $10, $20, um, $100. We, maybe we help people if they're in need. But, but we do it occasionally, and often it's not sacrificially. We would not be the, what the Bible calls tithing. And, and that's a good place to start, but ultimately I believe God wants to move us beyond that. And, and the next area of generosity is tithing. And that's what I spoke to you about last week, and I encourage you, if you didn't hear that, to go back and listen to the, the podcast about it. But, but tithing is recognizing that, that we want to partner with God in our finances, that we are redeeming our finances through giving God the first. And so I encourage you to listen to that and, and to respond as God leads you. The third level is offerings. Offerings are over and above your tithes which are to be brought to the local church where God's put you, but offerings are beyond that. Offerings are perhaps supporting missionaries around the world. Perhaps it's sponsor, sponsoring a child. Uh, Jen and I have, have made offerings in that way. Uh, perhaps it's just putting money aside into a separate generosity account so that when a need comes up, you're able to respond. That's above tithes. That's offerings. And then there's extravagant giving extravagant giving. Now, extravagant giving is what the Bible often calls the grace or the gift of giving. That's moments when God moves on your heart in a 
profound way, not because of an obligation, but you feel this sense of inspiration to give sacrificially. Jen and I have experienced that a number of times uh, that we have given beyond what really even made sense in the natural, but we have given extravagantly. And I don't say this to pat myself on the back. I just say it to, to testify of God's faithfulness. I'll never forget uh, before we moved here to Florida about nine or ten years ago, we were in a place that we were kind of just trying to keep our heads above water financially like many people were at that time. And I remember when we had first gotten married, we'd, he, we had uh, bought a house and then just through the circumstances of life, we had to sell that house and we were living in an apartment and nothing wrong with an apartment, but we had a growing family and we really felt like we wanted to have a home of our own again one day. And I remember uh, just feeling that uh, real desire. God, when we moved to Florida, we were asking you, would you give us a home? Would you give us a place that we could entertain people and, and, and do all of the things that we would want to do? And at that time, our church in Virginia was receiving a special offering towards a building fund. And I remember God putting it on our hearts to give to that building fund an extravagant gift. And, and for us at that time, it was like this wouldn't make sense. It, it, for us at that time, in order to give that amount, there would be really necessities that we would have to go without. But we believed and we were in agreement that God was calling us to give that. And I remember when we prayed over that offering and we said, God, we, we're trusting that you're our source. We're not buying your favor. We're declaring our faith that you're our source. But God, we are making the choice to prioritize your house through giving this offering. We gave that offering. We moved to Florida, looked for a house, and to be honest, we didn't find one for a long time, and eventually we found a house that at the time it didn't seem like it was really what we exactly what we wanted or where we wanted, but the reality was that God was positioning us in a great place that ultimately was a neighborhood that, that took off, positioning us in a place that we could have an impact on our neighbors. And we had... We've been able to lead numbers of our neighbors to Christ. Why? Because God put us in that place. And I believe it was in direct response to our faith that was saying, God, we're not looking to ourselves to figure it all out. God, you're our source. And God blessed us in a, great, in a great way. Another time, a couple years ago, and I know I'm way over, way over on time today, but I just feel this is important for us to get. I remember another time, a couple of years ago, uh, we were we had been a one-car family for our whole married life, and um, I remember it was when Jen was pregnant with Clara, and she was expecting. Uh, we were in the final trimester, and we had one car, and it had been great for all those years, but now we literally didn't have room in the car for all the kids. We're like, okay, God, we are content, but we're going to have to strap a kid to the roof here. I'm not sure how this is going to work. And I remember it was Christmas time. It was Christmas Sunday. Some of you have heard this story before. It was Christmas Eve, and we really felt stirred in our hearts that we were to give a sacrificial Christmas offering. We had a baby that was coming, and we didn't have a spot for the baby, but there was another baby that had come to the world that didn't have a spot either, and we just thought, you know what, God, we want to give to you. We want to honor you because of what you've done for us, and we gave a sacrificial offering, an extravagant gift for us on that day that literally meant that we wouldn't give each other presents, and we wouldn't do some of the things around Christmas that we wanted to do. 
We gave that gift and we were just saying, God, you're our source. We're trusting you. You give us everything we need. You know we do need a, a bigger vehicle. And I remember this was Christmas Eve and that night we came home from our family dinner and we walked into the house. Uh, we, we, hadn't, we didn't have the breakthrough that we were believing for. We actually had a break in. And on Christmas Eve, somebody had broken into our house, and the gifts that we did have for the kids under the, pre- uh, under the tree were all stolen, all of the uh, computers, electronics, all of my messages and the hard drives and everything was stolen. And it was like, okay, God, uh, the offering that we had would even cover the cost of the, the, uh, an insurance claim on these, on these items. God, what are we going to do? And I remember I called my dad, and he said, Son, I believe God is going to turn this around for good. I believe what the enemy meant for evil, God's going to use for good. The next morning, we woke up, and, um, and we, you know, we always say Christmas isn't about the gifts. Well, you have the chance to practice that when you don't have any gifts. <laughs> and we woke up, and we gathered, and I said, you know what, kids? I want us to remember this, that today we don't have any gifts, but we have the joy of Jesus. And if we don't have any gifts, but we have Jesus, we have everything we need. We have everything we need, and it was the most beautiful, precious Christmas morning that we've ever had. Why? Because we we enjoyed the joy of Jesus. Before long, neighbors and some of you from the church began to show up with extra gifts. All the stores were closed, but you're just taking gifts from your house and bringing them to our family. And My sister-in-law posted a GoFundMe uh, online that we didn't know about, but it ended up kind of going viral, and the local news came that night and interviewed us. And we had the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus on Christmas night, the the six o'clock news that Christmas night. We were able to say the story of Christmas is not about having more stuff. It's about having Jesus. And we were able to celebrate the goodness of God. The gospel was proclaimed and Jesus was magnified through that. Not only that, but, but through people's generosity, we were able to, to replace everything that was, that was stolen except, you know, some personal mementos. But we were able to, to replace everything that was stolen and we were able to have the money to put a down payment on a van. And uh, you may not think a minivan is a blessing from God, but when you got four kids, come on, you're living in the blessing. And why do I say that? Here's what I want to encourage you with. I want to encourage you that God is your source. He knows everything that you need. The Bible says before you even tell him, he knows that you need it. And you can trust God. And when you trust God, here's what it does. It takes the pressure off of you and it releases you into generosity. And so here's what I want to encourage you today. Wherever you're at, whatever step that you're at in your journey of generosity, I want to encourage you to turn up the dial on your generosity. Maybe you're a giver, but maybe you know God's challenging you to be a tither. Maybe you're a tither, but you, you, you can do more. You can begin to expand. Maybe you can sacrifice some things. Maybe you can sacrifice a meal a week to give towards missions. Maybe you can, you can sponsor a child and you, you pass on maybe a, uh, movie tickets or something. I don't know, but, but I, I want to encourage every single one of us to turn up the dial of generosity in our lives and here's, here's what I, I want to encourage you with. As we wrap up in the final months of 2019, worship team, you guys can come back up. What if we begin to get a vision for our lives 
that yes, we believe God for increase. Yes, we believe God for provision. But it is not so that we can just increase our standard of living, but so that we can increase our standard of giving. So that we can have a greater impact and expand God's kingdom. So that we can experience what Jesus says when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. I want to ask you if you would just to stand to your feet. We're going to close up very quickly this morning. But for just